0: Beep, boop, beep, 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 boop. It's time for robots, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Weekend Sports Wrap Podcast. I am your host, James Timberlake. That is a little bit of an intro that I totally got off the top of my head. Um, not a great intro, but I, I'll get into why I uh, believe that it's time for robots in the uh, in Major League Baseball um, here in a little bit. But first off, welcome to the Weekend Sports Wrap Podcast. I'm your host, James Timberlake. I already said that, but you know. Second time for second time for everyone. Um, Also, you can listen to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts, Uh, Spotify, Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, wherever you want to listen to this podcast, you can get it anywhere. Um, Just go to Spotify or wherever type in weekend sports rap podcast. And it should be one of the first things that pops up there. And if you're going to do it that way, please remember to subscribe and also rate. If you wouldn't mind, it helps us uh, out in the, uh, in the algorithm, if you will, maybe pops up in some other people's feeds and uh, gets us some more exposure. So I would appreciate if you would do that, uh, rate and subscribe. And then if you don't if you don't listen to it there, uh, you can listen to it on SheridanMedia.com as well and over on PodcastWyoming.com as well. So I'd appreciate if you'd go listen to it over on Spotify. If you want to listen to it on mobile, go check it out over there and then rate, subscribe, that sort of thing. And if not, SheridanMedia.com, PodcastWyoming.com. Those are great spots to listen to it as well. So we're going to get into it. It is robot time, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for robots. So if you are unaware of what I'm talking about, it has been the talk of the sports world, if you will, over the last whatever last few days. I think it was Sunday, Sunday night that it happened. I believe Um, Angel, Angel Hernandez, in all his infinite wisdom, the best umpire in the world, Everybody knows Angel Hernandez. He is the Scott Foster of the MLB. If you don't know who Scott Foster is, he is the NBA, an NBA referee that teams uh, usually don't enjoy watching or having uh referee their games because they believe he's pretty flippant with his calls. That is who Angel Hernandez is. He is um, um, not great. I'll put it that way. He's not... Um, He's not fun to watch if you're watching him from behind, you know, if if he's behind home plate and being an umpire um, a head umpire behind home plate, he's sometimes difficult to watch and that was the case on Sunday night against uh, between a game between the Milwaukee Brewers and the Philadelphia Phillies. Um he had a rough night. He had an overall accuracy of 88%, overall consistency of 88%. Now, if you're thinking 88%, that's not terrible. The average is about ninety four percent for MLB umpires. Um, he called one hundred and thirteen of one hundred and twenty nine taken pitches correctly. Thirteen called balls inside the uh, estimated estimated umpire zone, and uh, two called strikes outside of the estimated umpire zone. These are all all these estimates are coming from uh, a fantastic follow on Twitter and also a great uh, website as well. It's called Ump Scorecards. So UMP uh, Scorecards. You know dot com ump scorecards. com and then ump scorecards over on Twitter. Um, it kind of goes through and grades every uh, umpire performance throughout the season of every almost every single game every single uh, every single day it goes through and grades them and gives them you know an overall favor for expected runs for each team uh, depending on how well the grading is going for each team and it also gives them impactful missed calls uh, top three impactful missed calls. During each game. And, uh, and, uh, Angel Hernandez was a doozy on Sunday night. It has reignited the, uh, the flame of bringing in the, uh, the the robots and bring them out of the minor league system that they're currently in and bring them into the MLB, if you will. Um, his overall consistency, like I said, 88%. Overall accuracy was 88% as well on the night. And he had a couple of terrible blown calls. This is more of a visual um, set up if you will. But there's a couple, and if you watch the game, you would know, um, you would know how truly poor, truly poor it was. Um, if you look at the overall score, the, the ump score card, there's a, you know, a graph for each call he's made, he made on that night. And, um, the big one that everybody kind of points out was the bottom of the ninth. Josh Hader was on the mound. He was pitching to Kyle Schwarber. Um, there's one out, base is empty. It's a three, two call. As 3-2 count, and um, Schwarber and the Phillies were looking to at least tie the game or take the lead, and on the 3-2 count, he called the ball outside, low and outside, um, That he called it a strike, that should have been a ball, and Kyle Schwarber went absolutely nuts. Um, he flipped out on Angel Hernandez, Angel Hernandez didn't have any sort of reaction, almost as if to show that he was, that Schwarber is correct in this situation, which he is correct. He did have, you know, it wasn't as egregious as a call that was a little bit earlier in the game, which I'll get to. Um, but it was an incorrect call. It was a ball and, um, and led, uh, led to a strikeout in the bottom of the ninth inning, which could have, you know, began a rally or a rally. And then with that out becomes two outs. And then basically the game's over, especially against a guy like Josh Hader. And, um, he flipped out on, on Angel Hernandez, and rightfully so. He had a terrible game all night long. He also had a 77% called strike accuracy. 11 of the 48 called strikes were true balls. Let me repeat that slower. 11 of 48 called strikes were actually balls. 11 of 48 called strikes were actually balls outside of the zone. That is terrible. 77%, the average is 88%. He was 11% lower than the average in the, uh, in the MLB umpiring crew. Uh, he also had 94% called ball accuracy, averages 97%. So a little bit better. Five of 81 called balls were actually strikes. So benefit of the doubt there, you know, whatever. But the called strike accuracy was terrible um, all night long. And it has reignited the, like I said, the uh, robot umpires. When are they going to get here? And I'm ringing the bell as well. I saw the call. And the other call that I was going to talk about it was the bottom of the fifth. Um, Segura, Gene Segura was up to the plate against the Brewers, and it was a, uh, it's impossible to really describe to get the full understanding of the situation. You have to go watch the clip. There was a ball that was thrown so far inside that I, I could, I swear to you, Angel Hernandez must have been, he, his eyes must have been closed to call it a strike. It is such a bad pitch. If you go and look at the ump scorecard uh, graph here that they have up, uh, the, the 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 graph that they have the spot that they have for that pitch is almost off of the actual screen and he called it a strike. It is so egregiously bad that um it I mean it was one of the more impactful calls missed calls of the game it was second on this list it was one out bases were loaded the bases were loaded it was an 0-0 count and the ball was called to strike so it was now an 0-1 count in that situation and with the bases loaded that completely changes tons of percentages when it comes to baseball in in a game where, and this is kind of getting into my overall point in a game where um, you're asking these hitters, these, these guys to go up to the plate and make a split second millisecond decision of whether to swing or not to swing, whether it's a ball or strike um, and making that decision. You can't have a guy behind home plate like Angel Hernandez. And I'm singling out Angel Hernandez mainly because, like I said, he was the, 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 you know the 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 spotlight was on him on Sunday night because it, again he was on a primetime game and that's what everybody was watching they saw what happened and it exploded and you know everybody wanted the robots to come and save us all um but anyways when you, when you when you're asking batters to make a decision that is almost incomprehensible to a lot of people um even that people that play baseball at a lower level don't really understand how much of a quick decision these guys have to make. I mean, it is milliseconds on whether to swing or balls or strikes to have a guy behind home plate, give you the incorrect call after the batter makes the correct call with his eye. It's almost, it's almost unacceptable to be honest with you. You can't have the human element ruin what is making the game so special in itself, which is the other side of the human element of the batters being able to make those split second decisions that change the outcome of games and to have somebody like Angel Hernandez or any of the, the, the umpires that have played this year or have been behind home plate this year who have done a bad job. Some of them have done really good jobs. I don't, like I said, I don't want to single out Angel Hernandez. He was just the one guy in the spotlight in this moment. And he, he typically is, this is what Angel Hernandez does. He's not the best home plate umpire and he likes to make the game kind of a show for himself He's done that before. I am not really just kind of being flippant about that. There's a lot of people that kind of agree with me that he is um, somebody that likes to make the game seem like it's about him as well, which, you know, take that for what you will, but that is something that seems to happen with um, Angel Hernandez and for him to kind of go in, make this call after and Gene Segura in that situation and Kyle Schwarber are making the correct calls and have somebody like Angel Hernandez who is me- missing that call, even though he really does not have to do anything other than just watch the strike zone for them to miss that call. It's a problem in the game. And, it, and I totally agree with the people that are saying, bring on the robots. I get that, um, you know, they might not be as effective right now in the minor leagues. Um, Cause they, they are, and they're not even, they're not in the minor leagues per se. They're in the offshoot leagues, if you will. So um, the New England league and that sort of thing. So it's not even really minor leagues. It's kind of just being tested in, in, you know, offshoot leagues of the MLB that the MLB are like, Hey, you know, do this for us and we'll make you, we'll give you a pretty penny to keep, you know, playing in an offshoot league of us. Um, and I don't know what the, what the impact of those are entirely. Um, I think they're, they they can not be worse than what we're getting because this has been a problem. And, and the other, the other thing is, about being an umpire is it's a completely thankless job. I would never want to be an umpire. I, you know, I'm being a Monday morning quarterback in this situation because I would never want to be an umpire. No umpire who has a really good game has ever talked or, you know, stopped after a game and said, Hey, you did a really good job today. You've done a fantastic job making these calls. Most of the time they're always, you know, shown making the incorrect call. And that's just the life of an umpire. That's something you kind of, you, you have to live with. That's something that umpires know going into a situation like that, that they're, they're only going to be shined on when it's doing and when they're making a bad call and never when they're making a correct call or a good job or a job well done. That's why they, you know, they implemented review because people thought they were doing such a bad job that, you know, they, they had to implement review and they wanted every call to be correct. And, I get it on the field, but then you have this situation where the strike zone is almost never, I mean, not almost never correct, but it's almost arbitrary. There's not a singular strike zone. There is, per se, I mean, according to baseball's rules, but every umpire's got a different strike zone. So you have the review system for on the field doing things that are getting the correct call every single time when it's a bang bang play. But then you have behind home plate where it's completely arbitrary and it's kind of up to the umpire and where the strike zone is depending on where the pitch is. So it's a big drastic change in steps to the leap from the umpire behind home plate to having a review for bang, bang plays and stuff like that seems like a huge leap. And I'm not even a huge fan of the reviews either, to be honest with you, just because I think it slows the game down more. And the last thing we need to do is slow down the game of baseball even more than it is because it's already most of the time a slog and I'm a huge baseball fan. I love baseball. I love watching baseball, but for the people that aren't, um, are bringing are being brought into baseball, I can totally see where people are saying this isn't really fun. You know what I mean? There, there's not a lot of action in this game. It's really decided between a pitcher, um, and a couple at bats with a couple batters. That's the, that's the case for almost every baseball game that has been played. And especially this year when, you know, averages and on base percentages and OPSs are down across the board. Across the board, record lows in the history of the MLB. It feels like games are decided on a couple of moments throughout the game instead of it being every at-bat matters. It's a couple of at-bats here and there that seem to matter. And that's, you know, in a a world of TikTok or, you know, where the, the most popular things are only a few seconds long or a few minutes long, having to ask people, especially of a newer generation, to sit down and watch a game that is three and a half hours long. That isn't necessarily the most enjoyable, apart from these few these few moments that happen here and there. I understand why, you know, that's a, a big ask for people. So I get it. I get that part of it. I get why people are walking away from the game or not being as well introduced into the game. And this part of it, I believe, adding robotic umpires that make calls better, make them faster. And the other thing is, I don't want to get rid of the umpires in the field. I think they do a good a good enough job. Most of the time, those jobs are pretty easily, you know, they don't have as many bang-bang calls anymore, and most of them are done well enough to where we don't need to replace them, and we have review as well, so we don't need to get rid of the umpires in the field. I just think a robotic strike zone, I don't know how you would do it. Lasers, freaking lasers, I have no idea. But something, something needs to change because the drastic step from being behind home plate and having an arbitrary location of where the strike zone is back to in the field where everything is reviewed now and it has to be correct every single time. It's a huge step and a huge jump that doesn't make any sense for the rest of the game. And I just think it needs to change. And it's going to happen sooner rather than later. Unfortunately, a lot of these umpires are going to have to move out to being mainly field umpires. And that's just the way of the world that, you know, the way we're moving from now on. And that's just how it works. And you know, If the, if the robots can do it a hundred percent, if those, if those AI can get the accuracy down to a hundred percent every single time, nobody's going to have a problem with it. You know, I won't say nobody, people are still going to have a problem with it, but it's going to be a lot less. um, Their soapbox is going to be a lot smaller when the robot is calling it a hundred percent of the time correctly. than if it's, you know, people standing on the soapbox of Angel Hernandez just missed this call by about five and a half inches off the plate. The comparison's a lot different there. So, And I also I want to highlight a couple of the really good umpires. Alan Porter's done a fantastic job. He's done three games this year, 266 called pitches. He's only called six pitches wrong in all of those pitches. Three games, 266, 266 pitches, and only six called incorrectly. That's a 97.7% accuracy. That's a fantastic job. Edwin Mos... I believe how you say it. Correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, if I say his name wrong, I apologize. Edwin Moscaso, I believe how you say his name. Two games, 108 pitches, four called wrong. That's a 96.3 accuracy. Pat Hoberg, three games, 394 called pitches, 15 called wrong. That's a 96.2% accuracy. Corey Blazer, four games, 527 pitches called, and then uh, 22 called wrong. That's a 95.8% accuracy. So a lot of these guys don't do a bad job. I don't want to make it seem like it's an overwhelming majority um, that is doing it incorrectly. 88%, I would think, to people that don't watch the game or anything like that it's really easy to say again be monday morning quarterback or couch quarterback if you will and say i could have gotten that right when it's it's hard to do this job and i don't want to make it seem like i am i am for the robots but i don't want to make it seem like it has been so bad that it is completely destroying the game that i love it's not it's a very You know, minuscule moment that happens in almost every game. And it does happen almost every game where there's one call that should be a strike, shouldn't be a ball or vice versa. And that happens in every single game, it feels like. But most of the time, these guys do not get it wrong. I mean, if if they do get it wrong, it's a very minuscule amount. And it's just those moments like the one on Sunday that really blow up on social media and are on primetime for everyone to see. And granted the one that happened on Sunday was very bad. Uh, the one that was mainly the Gene Seguro one and the Gene Seguro one was terrible. It was awful. Like, don't get me wrong. It was really bad. And um, it was mainly just blown up because it's on prime time, obviously. And it blew up on social media that happens sometimes, but I do believe the age of umpires, they have a fantastic union. Obviously that's why a lot of these guys have held on to their jobs for so long, even after, you know, if they have a bad, Season or anything like that, you know, they have one of the strongest unions in the, in the country, to be honest with you. Um, but I believe the robots, it's time for the robots. I think it's the one, the one step that baseball can take to kind of modernize a very ancient game. And, um, I think it would one, it would be interesting. It'd be interesting to see a game where effectively every single call is a hundred percent in the strike zone and, what would change with the game if we're not talking about an arbitrary strike zone, not invented, but uh, manipulated by an umpiring crew or a home plate umpire, that sort of thing? So I just think it would be interesting. I think Angel Hernandez had a very bad game on Sunday. I'm not disputing that whatsoever. But I also believe that umpires, for the most part, a lot of them this year, have done a very good job and singling out all the umpires just because of the bad day that Angel Hernandez did, had. Was unfair. I don't see it as you know an overwhelming problem. Everybody, I, almost every umpire on this list that has called from behind home plate. The only three that are below ninety. There's only three umpires that are below ninety percent accuracy on this list that have called games um, from behind home plate this year. So it's not an overwhelming, overwhelmingly terrible you know across the board job that they're doing. But there are those moments that you're like, ugh the robot would have called that a ball before the ball was even at home play. And you know, you get those moments. So I see where people are coming from. I agree. I think it's time for robots, but um, I also think that a lot of these umpires do a good job. So, you know, that's, that's my take on the situation. It was an interesting moment. I'd like, I always like to see the Twitter discourse that happens or the internet discourse that happens. Uh, the takes that fly after a situation like that, when you get that bad of a call on a, on a primetime game, I always think it's fun to kind of go through and see all the discourse. And then of course, all the the robot stuff pops up and then it dies down a little bit more and then it pops up again. It's just an ebb and flow that we have to go through and we have to, we have to surf with until obviously until the robots come. And then even then the robots, will call, the robots will call a hundred percent correct strike zone and we'll want to go back for the human element, if you will. But who knows what's going to happen? Um, we'll have to see. I mean, it's not going to happen this year by any means or anything like that, but robots do feel like they're on the horizon. The robot takeover is on the horizon. It feels like, and uh, it'll be interesting to see, especially in a in a in a in a game that is uh, effectively, I won't say dying, but aging itself out, if you will, of the um, younger generations. Well, it's an, It'll be interesting to see uh, what happens with baseballs in the umpiring crew and especially behind home plate as time goes on. Uh, moving on we are moving on to it is draft week it is nfl draft week this one feels like it's kind of gotten um it's not been as popular um or as a uh, as uh, talked about as most drafts in recent years have i would say um for whatever reason personally i think it's probably because um it's not a stacked quarterback class like um most uh, drafts, not most, but a lot of the drafts in the past have been, um, and with the stacked quarterback class, you get the the revitalization of your franchise, if you will, with this one pick in the draft, If you get this one pick, the entire draft is, the rest of it doesn't matter, you get this one pick, and you become the next great franchise, see Trevor Lawrence or you know Justin Herbert, that draft class, that sort of thing, and that's why I think this one is Maybe not as popular as the others have been in the past. And I could be totally wrong. I could just be talking for no reason. Um, I just personally feel like this one has not gotten as much um, media as others in the past. And I think it's probably just because the the quarterback class in this one does not seem to be as strong as those in the past. So let's take a look at the big board. Okay, I'm using uh, Pro Football Focus here. I trust them with my life. I think if I was in a situation where I was falling out of an airplane, they would do the math to figure out how to save me from that airplane and bring me back in. I trust them most with football more than anybody. They do all the analytics. They do all the math. They're the best. I love looking at all their stuff. It's a ton of fun. If you love graphs and stats and all that stuff, PFF is a must. It does cost money, but it's a must to go look at. If you're looking at draft boards and all that jazz this is, that's the place to be is PFF pro football focus. So on their big board, number one, overall kind of, you know, another, you know, this is another reason too, in of why I don't think it's as popular. Number one, overall pick number one on the big board, Aiden Hutchinson kind of feels like the done and dusted number one, overall pick for the Jacksonville Jaguars. It's been reported that they have a few names that they're looking at for their first overall pick, but this guy has been the number one big board guy since the season ended a couple months ago. And even before then, when the season was going on, it was Aiden Hutchinson who was the best player in this draft class. So Aiden Hutchinson, number one defensive end. He's an edge defender, highest graded edge defender in college football this season. He has multiple ways to win with his blend of quicks and power. He is a complete edge defender who excels at both at against both the run and the pass. Um, he will almost certainly be going number one overall. I think it would be a relatively big surprise if Aiden Hutchinson wasn't drafted uh, number one overall to a lot of people. I think it would be a big surprise. But with that being said, number 12 on the big board here, and I'm skipping for a reason, kind of mending it together um, on number 12 on the big board here is actually the favorite by Vegas to be taken number one overall. And that is, Trayvon Walker from Georgia. He's 12th on the PFF big board. He's an elite physical specimen, six foot five, 275 pounds. Um, he dropped into a little bit of coverage last season, managed a pass breakup as well. Um, he's still kind of figuring out how to rush the passer, but he can't, uh, you can't really teach what he has six foot five, 275 pounds, crazy intangibles. He's the 12th ranked uh, player on PFFs big board. One of the best end edge defenders um, on the big board though. I think he's top Top three, I want to say. Let me take a look here before I even say it. Uh, He is top four. Top four. He's fourth on the edge defenders behind uh, Aiden Hutchinson, obviously number one overall, and then Kayvon Thibodeau, and then uh, George Carlaftis from Purdue is in front of him as well. But he is the odds-on favorite just based on rumblings within the NFL, you know, rumor mill, that sort of thing. He is the favorite right now as of Tuesday, the 26th, To be taken number one overall, according to Vegas. So there is that. I would be personally surprised if they don't take Aiden Hutchinson. He's the best player in this draft. Uh, You know, I wouldn't say by far, but he is the best player in this draft. Most upside, best edge defender in this draft. I would be surprised personally if uh, Jacksonville does not take Aiden Hutchinson number one overall. Number two uh, on the big board, Derek Stingley Jr. He's a cornerback, six foot tall, 190 pounds. It's about 20 he's almost 21 years old uh he played at LSU last year he didn't play very much last year if i remember correctly um but he was great when he did play uh he was great in 2 he was great in 2020 um and he was great he was really good in 2019 one of the best in the country in 2019 but he didn't play very much in 2021 he only played 154 snaps compared to 429 snaps in 2020 and 986 in 2019 um he has a lot, he's he's allowed a uh 41 only a 41.1% completion percentage for his career and uh, has been starting since his freshman year at LSU and LSU obviously no joke when it comes to drafting or creating cornerbacks and just defensive players in general and so Derek Stingley jr that's number two on the PFF big board number three in a loaded loaded position for this for this uh for this draft is uh tackles there are a lot of tackles that are highly ranked on this big board um but number three overall on the big board and number one at the tackle position is Charles Cross from Mississippi State. He's 21 years old, six foot five, 307 pounds. He graded at an 86.7 in the 2021 season, according to PFF. That's 17th amongst tackles in the country in 919 snaps. Um, Cross became a dominant pass protector in 2021. He allowed 44 pre- pressures on 574 pass blocking snaps in 2020 before giving up only 16 pressures on 719 pass blocking attempts in 2021. So an elite pass blocker um, at the tackle position. And like I said, this is a stacked class for tackles. If you're looking to get a right tackle or a left tackle, this is the draft for your team. And um, we'll see where he goes. Number four on the BFF on the PFF big board, best name in the draft. No question. His real name is Ahmad Gardner, but everybody calls him Sauce Gardner. Best name in the draft, no question. He's a cornerback from Cincinnati, 21, age 21, 6'3, 190 pounds. He's been one of the most consistent um cornerbacks throughout college football through the last uh through the last three years. 2021, he had an 87.1 season grade. In uh 2020, he had a 77.5 season grade. And then 2019, uh, he had an 88.0 Um, Cornerback uh, grade as a cornerback, and that is 10th in the country in 2019 and then 15th in 2021. In 2020, he dropped down a little bit to 56th in the country um, according to those grades as a cornerback. He has never allowed a touchdown in his career as a starting cornerback at Cincinnati, despite starting since he was a true freshman. In 2021, he took his game to another level, surrendering only 131 yards in 14 games played. 131 yards, that's it. And he's never allowed a touchdown as a cornerback in coverage. Fantastic player, Sauce Gardner, the guy, the name like Sauce, and never allowing a touchdown in coverage, and only 131 yards in 14 games this past season. Why would you not draft him? That's number four on the big board. Number five, I'm going to try to say this name. I'm going to apologize beforehand. Another tackle, he had a great season last year, Ikem uh, Equanu. Ek- I apologize if I'm saying that, Ron. He's 21 years old, 6'4", 310 pounds. He's from NC State. Uh, he had a fantastic season last year, 91.6 grade from uh, PFF and 819 snaps. That's ninth in the country at the tackle position. He has the single most dominant run-blocking tackle in the country in this draft. His 18 big-time blocks in the run game this past season were seven more um, than the next closest Power 5 offensive lineman. So, fantastic run-blocker at the tackle position. Could work on his pass-blocking a little bit. But he's also uh, another great tackle in a stacked class. Four tackles. Moving on to number six on the big board for them, Evan Neal, another tackle. This one from Alabama, twenty-one years old, six foot eight, three hundred and thirty-seven pounds. He played uh, one thousand and seventy-three snaps last year, uh, and aver- had a, a season grade of eighty-five point eight with Alabama. That's twenty-first in the um, tackle position uh, in the tackle position for PFF. He is six foot seven, three hundred. 50, 337 pounds, something like that. The weights kind of vary depending on who's measuring them. He is one of the most imposing specimens ever to grace this planet. He is a monster, gigantic, six foot eight, 350 to 330 pounds, whatever, however you're measuring it. He's huge, um, but he moves like he's 50 pounds lighter. He's an, it, uh, really weird to watch because you'll watch him and you're like, why is a guy that size moving that way? How do I do that? And then you realize. You can't do that because you're not Evan Neal. He allowed only 24 pressures also over the past two years between left and right tackle. So more of a pass blocking guy compared to um, Ikwanu, um More of a pass blocking tackle, but specimen nonetheless. He is six on the PFF big board. Now, number seven on the list, Kayvon Thibodeau. Pretty common name. Uh, not a common name, but a name that a lot of people know. He played at Oregon these past few years. He's 21 years old. Uh, six foot three, 254. He is also a physical specimen. Uh, he has an elite first step combined with an ideal frame for the position at six foot three, 254 pounds. Um, he does lack refinement, a little raw. Um, that You know, he had it, but regardless, he had a 91.5 PFF pass rushing grade in 2021. So one of the best pass rushers in this past season. Um, his overall gra- grade last year uh, from PFF was f- 83.2. That's 60th on the edge defender list in 560 snaps. So still a pretty solid year. He's fallen a little bit now, a little bit down the draft board since the beginning of the year. He was kind of the preseason number one overall pick, if you will, the favorite to be the number one over pick. He slipped a little bit, um, but he's still a very solid pass rusher. Again, with the edge defenders, there's a lot of them in this class. um, And he's another dominant one that should be able to slide in as an edge defender immediately. Once you draft him Uh, number eight on the big board for PFF, Kyle Hamilton, probably one of the best um, safeties coming out of college that we've seen in recent memory, six foot four, 220 pounds. He's from Notre Dame. He's 21 years old. Um, he is the modern hybrid defender that can play um, in the past and also uh, come up into the box, make solid tackles in the run game. He is very solid in that regard He's got great vision, incredible vision for the field and also for the quarterback's eyes. Um, he's great at, you know, monitoring the backside of the field while covering somebody downfield and then making the play if the play is happening in front of them. Um, he missed Notre Dame's final five games in 2021 with a minor knee injury. Um, he did came he did come down with uh, three picks and three pass breakups in his first seven outings, though. So missed those last five games with a knee injury. Could be a problem come draft day. Um that's usually what happens. People slip just because of health concerns, that sort of thing. Even if it is minor, that happens sometimes. Um, so it'll be interesting to see where he ends up um, come draft day on Thursday. Number nine on the draft board, our first wide receiver, Jameson Williams. Um, he tore his ACL in a national championship game. Uh, this was That was in, was that in February, I believe. No, uh, January. Back in January, he tore his ACL. So he'll probably miss... At least the start of the season, the start of um of, of the NFL season, this upcoming NFL season, if he's dra- when he's drafted, so he will miss that part of it. But state puts him firmly in the mix for wide receiver one as one of the best wide receivers in this class, and he's still the best deep threat in the class. And knowing the NFL today, deep threat is everything. You know, guys like Tyree Kill don't get paid, Jalen Waddle, that sort of thing. Those are what you know. That is what's dominating the NFL now is a deep threat. And a guy like Jameson Williams, who can just straight up outrun anybody on the field is a huge commodity, even though he tore his ACL back in January. That is something that teams would be willing to take the risk on, even if he's going to miss the first, you know, four or five, six, seven, eight games of the season. If he comes back a fraction of what he is, especially speed wise, then he will be one of the more dominant players in this class. Um, number 10 on the draft board. George Carl Laftis, again, another edge defender. He's from Purdue. He's a versatile Iron Man who can do almost anything a team you can ask of him. He played at least 49 staffs in all but one game this past season. So health is not, has not been an issue. And he finished with a 90.6 PFF pass rushing grade this past season. He's 21 years old, 6'2", 266 pounds. His overall grade last year was an 87.2. That is 26th of the edge defenders this past year. Uh, Number 11 on the big board, Trent McDuffie, another cornerback. This one from Washington. He's 21 years old, 5'11", a little bit smaller, 193 pounds. Um, He had an outstanding career at Washington, even though they weren't very good. Um, Outside of length, McDuffie has everything you could want from a high-end quarterback. At only 5'11", he plays consistently bigger than his listed size. Um, He allowed only 16 catches from 36 targets for 111 yards with no scores. And five pass breakups in 2021. So an outstanding season for Trent McDuffie this past season. Uh, an 86.8 season grade on 702 snaps. That's 17th in the country and cornerback. A uh, cornerbacks uh, in 2020 he had 242 snaps, 80.6 uh, pass grade. Uh, season grade, excuse me, uh, for and that's 24th for cornerbacks that season. And then in 2019 he had an 85.4 season grade in 752 snaps. That's 16th in the country that season. Uh, number twelve on the big board, Trayvon Walker. We talked a little bit about him. Lead specimen, six foot five, two hundred seventy-two pounds. Dude's an animal from the edge. Probably the odds-on favor to go number one, but we'll see. With Aiden Hutchinson still roaming around there. Um, number thirteen, another wide receiver. Number thirteen and fourteen are both wide receivers. Number thirteen is Drake London from USC. He's twenty years old, six foot four, two hundred and nineteen. Um, he broke his ankle in twenty twenty-one, so he had a short season, only eight games played. Um, but he was on an unmatched statistical tear, racking up 88 catches in just those eight games with four, or with uh, 1,084 uh, yards and seven touchdowns over that span. He is 6'5", like I said, 210 pounds, and he still led college football with 19 contested, contested catches um, in just the eight games played last season. He had a 91.3 season grade from BFF in 2021 and 490 snaps played. That is the third best wide receiver grade the entire season. Number 14, Garrett Wilson, another wide receiver. Uh, Wilson's ability to generate separation is the best in the class. He's fantastic at creating separation. He also produced at a high level from both the slot, which is where 73% of his snaps came from in 2020 and outside when, which is a uh, 82.9% of where his snaps came from in 2021. So you can kind of put him in either the slot or outside and he will be able to produce. He's 21 years year old, 21 years old. Six feet tall, 183 pounds, probably needs to put on a little bit of weight. Um, but, you know, with the programs that the NFL has, that's not necessarily a huge problem. Um, he had an 84.1 season grade from PFF in 2021 in 595 snaps played. That is 30th in uh, in the country for wide receivers. Number 15, our first linebacker in the class, not a huge linebacker class either. Uh, Devin Lloyd from Utah. He's 23, 6'3", 237 pounds Uh, He had a 90.2 season grade from PFF in 2021, 849 snaps played. That is 10th in the linebacking position from PFF. There may not be a better all-around linebacker in the class. Lloyd can take on blocks, blitz, and cover tight ends at a high level, which is why he earned a 90.2 grade this past year with above-average grades in pretty much every other facet of the game. So that is your number 1 linebacker in the class, according to PFF, and 15th overall in the big board now, number sixteen is an interesting one. Tyler Linderbaum, he's twenty-two years old. He's a center, six uh, foot two, two hundred and ninety-six, but two hundred and ninety-six pounds. But um, he's arguably the best center prospect that PFF has ever seen. Um, he's sixteenth on the big board, but he is um, one of the best center prospects they've ever seen. They've seen in the, in the on the grade. He had a ninety-five point four season grade. That is unheard of in a uh, court in, you know, pro football focus that is absolutely unheard of. That's obviously first among centers. And then in 2020, he had a 91.5 grade as well. And that was first among centers as well. He was already the highest graded player in the center in the country in 2020, but he took his game to new heights in 2021, earning a 95.4 overall grade. So he is uh highly touted if you will, but he's not being projected to go very high just because the center Position is not really needed until you go further down the list on um, in the draft order Um, thinking Minnesota, that sort of thing, Houston, um, even Baltimore, Philadelphia, that sort of thing, or those sort of teams could be looking for a a center as well. So it'll be interesting to see where he goes, but a guy in, you know, no, not all the, um, the scouts don't necessarily look at PFF or anything like that and determine who they're going to be picking, obviously, but, you know, from the outside looking in, if you will, it is, it'll be interesting to see where he goes because he is very highly touted. And I'm surprised he's not higher on this big board, to be honest with you. Um, interior defensive lineman, number 17, Devontae Wyatt on that dominant Georgia team. He's 24 years old, six foot 6'3", 304 pounds. Uh, between the two Georgia defensive tackles, Wyatt and Jordan Davis being the other one, Wyatt is the far more explosive athlete. And it showed as a pass rusher where he finished with an 84.0 grade and he was also very dominant in the senior bowl he had a 90.1 uh season grade from PFF at the interior defensive lineman position in 2021 and 423 snaps played he placed 11th in the interior defensive lineman um grouping from PFF now moving on to kind of skipping ahead here not really skipping ahead but i i'm not going to go through this whole list obviously if you want to look at the whole list feel free it's over on pff.com um I'm going to jump to the quarterback position because it is quite um, barren, I guess, is the word you'd probably want to say. Um, Malik Willis, that's the favorite, the the best quarterback in this class. He's the 30th ranked prospect, according to PFF, though. So that's a long way down the list. Um, but Malik Willis, he is the number one QB in this class. He is an electric playmaker, one of the funnest players to watch during the college football season this past season. Um, He reminded me a lot of, I mean, this is just kind of a, you know, from the outside looking in, didn't watch a whole lot of Liberty football, but you know what I mean? He reminded me a lot of uh, Steve Young, if you will, Steve Young, Lamar Jackson. Um, He's an electric playmaker. He runs around with the football. He can run with the football. He's a fantastic passer of the ball downfield. He had the second highest big time throw rate according to PFF that they've ever charted at 11%. Um, he had a season grade of 91.6, uh, 830 snaps in 2021, and that is ninth in the country among quarterbacks. Next to him, one uh, four spots below him on the big board and second Q- best QB in this class according to PFF is Sam Howell. Um, he may have taken up, he took a, a bit of a step back last year as a passer. Um. But he proved to be a legitimate threat as a runner in 2021. Um, He broke an absurd 63 tackles and ran for 1,072 yards this past season. So took a step back as a passer, which not something you really want to see as a quarterback. But he's adding a little bit of a dual uh, dual threat situation with him as well. So that's important to add, especially in today's game uh, in the NFL as well. So if he can kind of combine both of those, he can be the best player in this class as well. So we'll see what happens there. Number forty-one on the big board and the third best-ranked quarterback in this class is Desmond Ritter from Cincinnati. He's twenty-two years old, 6'3", hundred and eleven pounds. He had a ninety-point-seven grade from PFF this year or this past season. That is twenty, or excuse me, nineteenth in the country. He played eight hundred and twenty-four snaps. He played all four years um, at Cincinnati, starting as a freshman. And he makes him one of the most experienced passers in the class. And he improved every single year and rode to a career high 90.7 grade in 2021. So four-year starter at Cincinnati, led them to a playoff this past year. And he was a four-year starter in all those years. And he got better and better and better until, obviously, the very end as a senior 90.7 grade as a senior. Number 42, right next to Desmond Ritter, the fourth best quarterback in this class, according to PFF, is Kenny Pickett from Pittsburgh, 23 years old three, two 217 pounds. He's the biggest riser at the quarterback position over the past season. Uh, Pickett did not earn a single sub-70 grade from PFF all season long. After managing only 10 big-time throws in 2020, Pickett totaled 29 in 2021. In his fourth year as a starter, Pickett looked decidedly different, uh, being more aggressive, throwing the ball downfield, that sort of thing. So we'll see. It'll be interesting to see where he ends up. He's kind of been one of those that have been up and down as a as a big board you know as, as somebody that's trying to spot him on a big board he has been up and down and all around people have liked him as the best people have liked him as the second best people have sp- spotted him as the worst quarterback in the class so nobody knows what's going to happen there um but he is an interesting prospect nonetheless but as of right now it is Malik Willis leading the quarterback um position at the number 1 as the number 1 quarterback according to PFF and um We'll see where he ends up. We'll see where everybody ends up. I love draft time this time of year, but I will say don't gamble on the draft. Okay. It's completely random. You're going completely off of, um, off of, um, uh, you know, rumors. I mean, it's completely random. There's not a lot that you can, um, kind of predict at the draft other than, you know, maybe the first or second pick after that, it is a complete crapshoot. I never ever gamble on the draft because it is so random. And people that do that, really love just chaos so more respect to those people but don't do it you maniacs do not bet on the draft unless it's the first or second pick then i can you know i'll be like all right whatever you know first or second pick we all hear everything about the first and second pick we'll see what happens there and if you want to put money down i it, put money down you know i'm not your i'm not your not your gambling person but if you're gonna do it do it you know what i mean you know no big deal but after that let's chill out all right let's relax okay Complete crapshoot after that. Nobody you know nobody pays attention or looks at the 16th to the 32nd pick in the draft, you maniacs. Let's chill there. We're not going to do that. Um, another name I want to bring up on this uh, draft big board, Chad Muma, the linebacker from Wyoming. Kind of tipping my hat towards my cowboy Wyoming Cowboy fan listeners. He's 63rd on the PFF big board. Um, He was one of the most productive defenders in all of college football in 2021. Without a doubt, he generated 68 total defensive stops, three interceptions, 21 pressures for the Cowboys at six foot three and 242 pounds. He has legit NFL size and athleticism. He had a 90.3 season grade for the Cowboys this past season at his ninth amongst linebackers. And he's 63rd overall on the big board. So somewhere in the late second round, uh, early third round, something like that. and we'll end up seeing where he goes. And um, another Wyoming cowboy in the draft, another Wyoming linebacker in the draft that looks to be going in the second or third round, a la Logan Wilson. And we'll see if Chad Muma can maybe one up Logan Wilson, if you will, in there in his um, in his uh, NFL career and in the NFL draft. So we'll see what happens there. I'm excited to see the draft. It's always fun. Um, after the you know second or third day, you're kind of like. Uh, where they're just kind of throwing up the picks on the screen and you're just seeing them fly by and they're just talking about a pick that happened like, you know, 10 picks ago that, that that's kind of where I click off and I'm like, okay, I get it. You know what I mean? I'll, you know, I'll see you guys on hard knocks. You know what I mean? That sort of thing. So, but first two days are always interesting and fun to watch. And we'll, we will see where all these names end up, um, come draft day on Thursday and it is in Las Vegas. And, um, I believe it's on, you know, ESPN, NFL Network, all all the football networks if you will. And we'll see uh, what the Broncos get, what the Vikings get, please, for the love of god, get a lineman, just get a bunch of linemen, maybe a wide receiver if you're the Vikings, if you're the Broncos, probably an offensive lineman as well. You probably need a D-lineman as well. Um but hey, the Broncos, I mean, they're That sounded like a horse, right? They don't have a first pick. They don't have a pick in the draft. They don't have a pick in the first round, obviously because of the um Russell Wilson trade but um we'll see what happens with them. I don't I where do they pick? Let's let me filibuster here for a second. Denver Broncos I don't know where they pick. They don't have a second round pick. They don't have they have a third round pick. So their first pick, Denver Broncos first pick in the draft is the third round. I think that's day 2. I believe that's day 2. I think they do round 1 and 2 the first day. I'm kind of you know, maybe um, no round. Okay. So rounds two and three are on Friday. Round one is on Thursday. So he's a day two pick. Uh, they The Broncos get their first pick on day two. We'll see what they end up taking on their first pick of the draft on day two in the third round. So we'll see what happens there. NFL draft season. And then we have to wait a little bit longer for the actual football season, but you know, kind of a little sprinkle on the sprinkle on the ice cream while you wait to eat it, if you will. So, Draft season, that's going to wrap up the show, I think. We talked about umpires, we talked about baseball, and we talked about draft. I think we covered a, a decent plethora of things this week. We're going to talk about whatever I want to talk about next week. That's just how the podcasts work, and that's how we're going to wrap it up. So thank you very much for tuning in. If you have suggestions or anything, leave a comment on the post on podcastwyoming.com. And, um, yeah, thank you very much for tuning in. I've been your host, James Timberlake, and you have been listening to the Weekend Sports Wrap Podcast.